Hello and welcome to Trips Tennis Talk, the amateur podcast about professional tennis. Thanks for finding the pod whenever and wherever you may be listening. Wow, that was a heck of a match, wasn't it? Today we're going to be talking about the quarterfinal lineups that happened on Friday, August 19th at the Western and Southern Open ATP WTA 1000 event in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm recording this at 9.33 p.m. on the West Coast, 12.33 a.m. on the East Coast. This is about 45 minutes after Alcaraz and Nori finished their awesome match, which we're going to spend a good chunk of time discussing. So let's go ahead and get right into Cameron Norrie's scintillating and, in the end, a come-from-behind victory over Carlos Alcaraz. So let's talk about that right now. So the first benchmark of the match was Norrie getting up a set and 4-1. So let's briefly talk about how the match arrived at that point. So this was the last quarterfinal of the day between number three seed Carlos Alcaraz and number nine seed Cameron Norrie. This got started at 8.44 p.m. on Friday night, and there were no breaks of serve in the first set. It went to a tiebreak which Cameron Norrie ended up winning. And in that first set, um, um, Alcaraz had a lot of breakpoint chances, and he was unable to get them. Um, Alcaraz had four chances to break in that first set, and Norrie had two chances, and neither guy was able to get it done. And... Alcaraz lost his serve at 1-2 in the second set, and then lost the next game after that. So at this point, Alcaraz was serving at 6-7-1-4, and this is the time of the match where the larger implications come into play in your mind if you're thinking about that type of thing. There was a stat going around that Alcaraz has won a set in every match that he's played in 2022, and that streak was at real jeopardy when Alcaraz was serving at 6-7-1-4. And also in that stretch of play, there was a fireworks display that went off in the sequence when Alcaraz got broken early in that second set. For those of you that don't know, there's a a theme park, an amusement park, on the other side of the interstate there in Cincinnati. It's called Kings Island, and they're known for two things, I would say. Number one, they have roller coasters, and number two, they have a fireworks display that goes off on 10 p.m. on Friday nights, apparently, and it was going off in that sequence, and if you listen to a replay of the match, you'll probably hear a series of sustained, percussive 
firework explosion booms, and the players continued. There wasn't a stoppage like there has been in years past. For example, at the Australian Open, Independence, um, Australia Day celebrations that have happened, you know, at this point, that hasn't happened for several years, but, you know, 10 years ago, that was a thing in Australia. And it was a thing here, but the players didn't stop, and they didn't seem to really be bothered by it, except one that I noticed was Alcaraz was going to have an easy overhead to win the point, and when he was waiting for the ball to come into range to hit the smash, one of the firework booms went off, and he hit the smash into the net. I don't know if that's what caused him to do that, or if it was just him playing that point poorly, but it is something that I noted, that the fireworks could have put Alcaraz in a disadvantage in that situation there. And it was really neat to see something from my childhood days there, because I was born and raised in Cincinnati from 1992 to 2000, and two amusement parks sort of places that I remember. Number one, Kings Island, which I was never a huge fan of because Little Trip did not like roller coasters. Big Trip doesn't really like roller coasters either. And Coney Island, not to be confused with the one in New York City. And the one in Cincinnati has a huge pool, and there's like a concession stand in the corner, and there's a a game section, carnival games, and rides. Not as intense as King's Island on the rides, but I liked going on the Ferris wheel. I liked going on the Scrambler. I have good memories of that. So it was really interesting to see something from my daily life when I was six, seven years old, affecting a sporting event that I was watching. So that was interesting. And that contributed to my general feelings of positivity that I had throughout the whole match. Number one, because it was a great, entertaining match to watch, it was increasingly dramatic. And... You know a match is good when you're kind of screaming into the open air in your house when no one else is there, and that definitely happened on a couple of occasions in this match. So I was in a very good mood watching the match. That was because of the good day of coverage and ending with one of the matches of the year, definitely the match of the week. Here's a little coffee sip. It's a big pod. Gotta get that coffee. So from 6-7-1-4, how did the match change? In the interview afterwards, which I'll play in a bit, Nori said that he started to think about the finish line, and that affected his play. He admitted that he got tight, and he also claimed that Alcaraz rose his level, which he certainly did late in that second set. 
So some uh, quickly after getting the stat out there about Alcaraz not winning a set potentially could could be happening for the first time of the season. He gets the break at 4-2 to get back on serve at 4-3. Holds to make it 4-all. A couple of holds later, they get into a second set tiebreak, and uh, uh, there's an insane point at 5-4 in the tiebreaker that I'm going to play for you right now. And, again, this is at 5-4 in the tiebreak. And Alcaraz is serving up 5-4 with a mini break. And this is the point that ensued. Listen to how the crowd reacts to this. So that was the crowd reaction to Alcaraz at the end of the second set there. And to start the third set, Alcaraz got the quick early break to go up 3-1 and serving. And your traditional school of thought in this situation is he's got it now. He's kind of struggled. He's made his comeback. Now he's in the winning position. And because he's a top player that has some big trophies, he'll close it out. But unfortunately, that is not what happened. He played a couple of bad games on his serve to get broken twice. Um, but even so, even in that last game, when Nori was serving for the match at 40-love and it got back to 40-30, you still felt like if Alcaraz got back into it, it could very easily go his way still. Alcaraz was down 
40-30, you know, double match point, match point. And he was still into it. He was still engaging with his team. He was very much in that match, and it was very much in question until the final point was won by Cameron Norrie. And those kind of matches are the best. They make for a great viewing experience, especially in a standalone situation where it was the only match of any kind going on around the grounds. And especially on these late night kind of weekend situations and a high stakes situation like a Masters quarterfinal. Uh, the qu- and the quality of the match, it felt like there were more winners being hit by both guys than in many of the matches I've seen this week, where I've been talking a lot recently about players having double fault issues, playing players hitting a lot of errors, tie breaks being lopsided. That was more last week. So it was nice to see some passing shots, nice to see some winners. It was nice to see matches being won matches being played at a high quality and all of those situations and factors made this a great match one of the matches of the year maybe not the best but uh, top 10 top 10 match of the year I would say tennis at its best and especially the ones that you don't see coming I didn't think this match was going to be particularly notable I mean I didn't think it was going to be a dud going in but I just kind of thought, you know, this will just be, you know, the end of the day. You know, Alcaraz will probably get the win, and we'll move on to the semis tomorrow. And I was pleasantly surprised with a Friday night treat. And hope if you're listening to this, you got to be pleasantly surprised by that too. The matches where you're genuinely surprised about something that happens in a good way and in a sustained way like this match was, doesn't happen too often. Djokovic-Vavrinka 2013 Australian Open comes to mind, a match like that, where you just catch lightning in an awesome bottle, and this was in that league, and the match didn't peter out in the third set either. It wasn't a 6-1 set, and the score was 6-4, it wasn't those kind of 6-4 sets where you get the break to go up to love and then it just goes with serve. Everyone holds to 15 the rest of the match. There were multiple breaks in that third set. It was nip and tuck both ways, and it was 4-4. You know, at one point, the match was 7-6, 6-7-4-all. You can't ask for much more than that. I know it could be closer, you know, it could have gone 7-5-7-6, but what we ended up with, it was a very entertaining match. And um, at 4-all in that third set, Cameron Norrie got the break, and he served it out in the next game to get the career-defining victory 7-6-6-7-6-4 against the kid the teenage phenomenon, the teenage phenomenon, Carlos Alcaraz is out. Another one of my picks does not make the semifinals, but he did a lot better than the rest. So the most impressive thing about Alcaraz this week was he was able to overcome the first match, second match 
losing results that all my picks have been getting. So that tells you how well he played. Sip. A couple other random thoughts. Alcaraz was pumped after he won that second set. It was a Grand Slam match level celebration. So that tells me he very much wanted to win this match and this tournament. He wasn't thinking about the U.S. Open. Well, maybe he was. But he was also thinking about Cincinnati. And you like to see that. You like to see these tournaments covered on their own merits instead of just as a warm-up, a meaningless warm-up for an upcoming tournament. Let's not worry about the next three tournaments away. Let's worry about this tournament. This is a 1,000-point tournament happening today, and this is a good tournament. And after the match, Nori spoke with Tennis TV. I thought the interview was really nice to hear from him, so I'm going to find that here. 3.16.23. Let me click through to that. 3.16. Not quite, not quite yet. Okay, let's listen to Cameron Nori on court after the match. Well, Cam, congratulations. Five, six, seven, eight times it felt like Carlos was about to seize control of the match and just run away with it. How in the heck did you get through? And an unfair question, where does this rank career wins for you in your career so far? No, that was unbelievable and um, yeah, credit to Carlos. I was uh, setting a break for one and, and I kind of lost a little bit of uh, vision. You know, I kind of was thinking a little bit too much about the finish line and, and rather than focusing on how I was winning points and, and I honestly got a little bit tight and he raised his level, didn't give me anything. Um, and then again in the tie break, he raised his level and, and, and uh, snuck a couple of those really long points and, and I had to just take my time. You know, I could easily uh, get away from me there in, in the third set and I was obviously down a break, but I just wanted to um, hang tough with him and I think the only place uh, I had him better was, was the legs and the physicality. So I, I was just trying to make every rally as physical as I could and, and make it tough for him to, to finish points. And I managed to do that in that last game, serving 30 love. And, and I um, <laughs> toughed a couple of balls out there and, and uh, yeah, managed to, to turn it around. But it was, it was uh, just a, a really good battle and exactly the match I wanted just before the US Open. And, and I'm definitely going to test the legs and test the fitness heading towards uh, um, Flushing Meadows next week. I'm going to read you from the stat line. 20, win, uh, 20 winners, 41 unforced errors. Did you feel like you had to play with a very thin margin today? So that was my, my attempt. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's tough, you know, because he can take the, the racket completely out your hand, and, and I had to, when, when he's dictating with the forehand, it's, it's really tough and you're running a lot. So, um, no, I just had to, to try to put the ball in, in awkward positions in the court. I, I managed to serve really well, improved a lot from our previous matches and and uh, it's funny how tennis works. You know, I started the tournament so tight, playing playing terribly and, and I won a couple of mat tough matches and, and I found some confidence uh, yesterday and then and, uh, find myself in the semi-finals, you know, feeling really, really good about my game and, and hitting the ball really well. Well, Borna Chorch um, up next, uh, a nice win for him over Felix just a little while ago. 
He's playing with some incredible energy right now and serving huge. How do you match up with Borna tomorrow? Yeah, he's a great competitor and he's really got some, some good level and I've watched him um, quite a lot this week. He beat Rafa obviously the other day. He's playing some of his top level and, and uh, I think he's won his matches very comfortably so he's going to be feeling pretty fresh and, and uh, ready to go but I'm really not thinking about that just yet. You know, I want to enjoy that. I think maybe it's my... Uh, my best win, you know, I think obviously where Carlos is in his career and, and uh, what he's doing um, this year is just incredible and, and uh, to get a win over him um, it feels really good and, and uh, nice to get him once and I feel like I need to get him when he's young, you know, he's going to keep raising his level so nice to get one in there for sure. Cam, congratulations. Thanks Mike, appreciate that. Cheers. Interesting comments there from Cam Norrie I thought that was pretty insightful. One more thing I should also mention about the match is that Alcaraz started the match 0 for 10 on break points. So that was part of his frustrations in the first couple of sets. Maybe why he didn't win the first set. Uh, for the match, let's take a look at the stats. First serve percentage in the 60s. Um, let's see. Return rating. What does that even mean? It's one of those meaningless stats. Um, um, Nori was 3 out of 8 on break points. Carlos was 2 out of 13. So he definitely struggled a lot more on that. That guy in the interview, he was not correct about the winners to unforced. Nori has 25 winners and 30 errors, so he was only minus 5 there. He wasn't minus 20, or whatever that guy said. Even the professionals can get it wrong. And Alcaraz was 43 winners to 33 errors, so that's plus 10. So it's interesting, Nori was minus 5 off the ground, Alcaraz was plus 10, and Nori is the winner of the match. And same with total points, Alcaraz wins 120 points to Cam Nori's 115. And that, that's a, winning by 5 is not something you see too often. Usually if somebody wins more points, it's maybe one more or it's tied. But Alcaraz wins over a game's worth more points, and he does not win the last point of the match. So definitely an interesting match. Even When, when, when even the stats are close or when the stats favor the loser, you definitely know it was a, an interesting match. And... Uh, Cameron Nori and Carlos Alcaraz definitely played an entertaining one on Friday night in Cincinnati. Moving to the big picture for what this means for both guys and some other guys, um, I spoke earlier this week about how this was an important moment in the race. This was an opportunity for especially Alcaraz and Sitsipas to gain significant ground on Rafael Nadal after Rafa's early loss this week to Borna Chorich. And it might happen for Sitsipas, but 
it is not going to happen for Carlos Alcaraz. At the moment, Alcaraz is still number two, but that could be changing. Um, Rafael Nadal is number one in the race, and Alcaraz is in second place. And at the moment, that margin between first and second is a total of 1,170 points after that match tonight. So Alcaraz really left a lot of points on the table by not managing to get through this one. Sitsipas is number three right now. He's only uh, not much. He's only 80 points behind number two. So if Sitsipas wins tomorrow, he will go to number two for the year. And if Sitsipas goes all the way this week, he would have 5,020 points, which means the margin behind Rafa would be 610 going into the U.S. Open. So not as much as Alcaraz could have gotten, but, you know, it could be less than... It's definitely under 1,000 there, as you see. Cameron Norrie is up to 11 as a result of his performance today in the race. Let's just go off and uh, read what we've got here. Let's just go through the race really quickly. Rafa is number one. Alcaraz is narrowly number two, with Sitsipas just behind him at three. Medvedev is up to five after today. And Rude is four. So Rude's four, Medvedev is five. Felix is six. Zverev is seven. Rublev is eight. So that's your provisional London field right now. Or Turin, sorry. Her catch is nine. Fritz is ten. Cameron Norrie is up to 11. And Djokovic is down another spot to 13. Djokovic is going the wrong way on these race points. He's gone from 8 to 10 to 12. Now he's down to 13. A very unfamiliar place for him to be. If Nori wins tomorrow, he would be 2380. He would go from 11 to 10 in the race. And if he won the tournament, he would go to 2780, which would take him to number 7 for the race. So... Cam Norrie is kind of knocking on the door at the top of the game at the moment. Interesting stuff. And I guess we can talk about Norrie now. He's a guy, he's the new, we don't really think about him this way, but Cam Norrie is the new face of British tennis. He's taken over from Andy Murray, especially with Murray kind of having a disappointing last couple of months. Let's think about Norrie's last year or so. He's the Indian Wells champion from the Indian Wells that was held in October 2021. He made the Wimbledon semifinals this year, which really isn't done all that often in men's singles. I don't have it in front of me, but Nori, Andy Murray, um, Tim Henman, a guy from the 70s that I looked up at the time, but I can't remember. Maybe it was the 70s. But in the last century... At Wimbledon, only a handful of guys have made the men's semis, and Norrie is one of them. And he's going to be in the... He's ranked 11 right now in the real rankings, and 
that's going to be going up, I think. And he's the number nine seed here in Cincinnati. And Nori said in the audio that you heard that this was one of his best wins. Even though it's not a Masters final or a Grand Slam quarter, you know, it's quote-unquote only a Masters quarter, but it was because of the guy that he was playing against. You know, Alcaraz might have won this match if it was played in three or four years. And there was a significant age difference today. Alcaraz is 19, Cam Norrie's 26. Seven years, you know, in, in pro tennis, that's, you know, that's like a generation apart. So, really interesting stuff there for Cam Norrie. And Cam Norrie, welcome to the top of the game. If winning a Masters tournament and getting to a Grand Slam semifinal didn't do it, maybe this will finally cause him to gain a little bit of mainstream acceptance. You know, the people on at outlets like the Tennis Podcast, you know, they're all British people. You know, they're predisposed to you know, discuss Nori, like Nori. Maybe now the rest of us will join them in that um, feeling. For the Alcaraz side, he had a better tournament this week. He's still not quite at the highs that he was early in the season. I think this was a winnable match. He was in a winning position in that third set. It would have been huge for his confidence and it would have been massive to his aura to win a match like this from the set and 4-1 down. But he his game crumbled a little bit. Well, I won't even say a little bit. I mean, in the crucial moments at the end, his game crumbled, especially on his serve. And the commentators on the match were alluding to this. They were basically saying that Alcaraz was hitting shots that were unwise professionally. Even if they worked in the moment, they were basically saying he was going about his shot selection and going about his shots in the wrong way. And that kind of reminds me of the famous shot that Djokovic hit against Federer at the 2011 U.S. Open. Those slap returns on match point down. And Djokovic plays like that, or has played like that, in some other ma- big matches in his career, like the first set of the 2012 Australian Open final. He was down in that set and just hit a bunch of slap, quote-unquote, slap shots. And, you know, the commentators today about Alcaraz, they were kind of implying that, like, he was playing stupid shots. So that can be something that Alcaraz can clean up on. And that's a difference from earlier this season to now. You know, earlier in the season, they were using this, using the kind of train of thought from the commentators on the broadcast today. Alcaraz was hitting stupid shots, and they were going in, and he won two Masters events. And now, later in the year, Alcaraz is doing the same shots, but now they're not going in as much, and his results have suffered. So... With his coaching team, that is something that he's going to have to figure out as time goes on. I did listen to this match, a good portion of it, with the Tennis TV commentary. And this is an instance where the commentary enhanced the broadcast for sure. 
they were joking about how the King's Island fireworks presentation happened. They were talking about drones. And, you know, I figure they were British guys because they were totally in the tank for Nori on what is supposed to be a global, nonpartisan broadcast. But in this case, they were kind of living and dying with the points with Nori. They were kind of living and dying with the exciting nature of the match. And that's what we're doing at home. So, in this case, I thought it was alright. I thought it enha- the commentators enhanced the broadcast. And if you guys don't know me, I spend so much time being negative on how the American media covers tennis, especially ESPN right now. And let's just take a moment when things are going well. The last two weeks, you haven't heard a peep from me about problems with the tennis media because the streaming services, they've worked and they've been great. That's the way to do it going forward. And, you know, the Tennis TV is not an American-based broadcast, so, you know, they cover it better than the American media does. The international media is better than the American media when it comes to tennis, and it's not even close. I think that wraps up my thoughts on that match. Now let's talk about some deep dives in the other matches that I had my eye on today. Um, the first match of the night session for the men was Felix Auger-Aliassime taking on Borna Chorich, and I'm going to go a little bit quicker on these. The, the match stat on this one, to me, is the break points. It was a routine win for Chorich, 6-4, 6-4, and if you look at the break points, Chorich had nine chances and broke twice. And Felix did not earn a break point on Chorich the whole match. So in other words, Chorich was holding easily, and Felix was struggling to hold. Sometimes match analysis just comes down to that, you know? Felix was just outmatched today by a guy who's ranked outside the top 150. What is Felix's ceiling, do we think? He's still young, but is the back half of the top 10 his ceiling? Is he going to be a perennial 9 through 12 guy in the rankings? Making, you know, the middle rounds of tournaments the occasional run beyond that, but that's it? Because at the moment, that's what ha- that's what is happening. At least it wasn't as bad as last week when he lost to Rude. I think he won two or three games. Well, today he won, like, double that. He won eight games today. But still, it was, it was never really a factor. And... This match was totally on Chorich's racket, and he did not waste the opportunity. Um, just real quick on Chorich. Uh, Chorich is only into his third Masters semi. The other two came in 2018, as I mentioned this week. So it's nice to see him have a good week. He seems like a good guy. I don't know too much about him, but he is coming back from those injuries, and it's nice to see him back up the upset of Nadal. And yes, it was an upset with two additional match victories. Uh, two more matches that I had my eye on. In contrast to the high-quality night match that, that I just spent half an hour talking about, 
It's hard to watch Arena Sabalenka play tennis sometimes, you guys. It's just the mental anguish that she very clearly goes through because of the serve and the physical damage that that does to her game. You know, the, the points that she loses off the serve. It's just hard to watch sometimes. And she won in straight sets today against Zhang. But man, it was like pulling teeth. And I don't think she was happy or comfortable out there. Sabalenka's serve was broken five times. But thankfully, she was good enough in other parts of her game to get that match done in straight sets. There was a rain delay for about half an hour in that one. And in the Sitsipas isner match that was being played concurrently to this, there have been some random rain delays this week out of absolutely nowhere. Sabalenka was at 4-all in the first set against Zhang, held for 5-4, then broke to win the set. Zhang was up a break 3-2 and 4-3 and 5-4 in the second. But Sabalenka managed to get it back. I think she has a comfortable head-to-head record against Zhang as well. And despite that, she was still really struggling today. So the Alcaraz-Nori match had a lot of winners and a lot of clutch shots. The Sabalenka-Zhang match did not. And then earlier in that earlier today... In the last deep dive that I had my eye on, Medvedev was taken on Fritz, um, uh, and it is known that Taylor Fritz is not an elite tier player when it comes to clutchness. I saw some people say this week, maybe it was John Wertheim, maybe it was somebody else, I can't confirm if it was John Wertheim or not. Someone said he's above average in the clutch department, Taylor Fritz. I don't know about that. Number one, he was not clutch in the Rafa Nadal-Wimbledon match at all. He should have won that match. And today, he had six. Six, maybe? For the match, he had six. He had six opportunities to break Medvedev's serve today, did Fritz. And especially on a couple of them, he just had easy putaways, and Fritz was just unable to do it. Uh, Medi saved a set point at 4-5, serving on serve. And then Medvedev saved two more set points at 5-6 that he really should have lost. And then after having those moments, Fritz just let it slip away very quickly. And Fritz won the first point of the tiebreak to go up 1-0. Then Daniil Medvedev won seven consecutive points to win the first set tiebreak. 7-1. Then he got the break in Fritz's first service game of, of the second set, and that was basically all she wrote. And for Fritz, why was it all she wrote, right? I mean, he could have tried to dig in at, you know, even if you're 7-6, 5-2 down with the struggles that he had, you know, it didn't have to be a foregone conclusion, but... The unclutch Taylor Fritz, at least today. I mean, and he knew it. I mean, after the first set, he was visibly frustrated on the changeover. So if the fans know this stuff, 
And if the fans say this stuff about chances and choking and whatnot, I mean, the players know it too. So it's not like I'm some ha- having some hot take here. It's just facts. I mean, I watched the match. He played the match. We both saw the same thing. So those were the matches that I had uh, my eye on today. Uh, now, let's move on to our score read. And I'm going to include doubles in this as well. On the women's side today, uh, there was one women's doubles quarter that was made up maybe because of rain, I'm guessing. Uh, the number seven seeds, Ostapenko and Kitchenok. Apologies on pronunciations. They beat Haddad Maya and Danilina, 6-3-3-6-10-8. They play match tie breaks here in the doubles for both men and women. Then the women's doubles semifinals were today. The semis, not the quarters, but the semis. Uh, the number... Six seeds went down. Melichar Martinez and Perez beat the number six seed, Kravchik and Schurz, 7-5-6-4. And then in a late one, in an upset, the number seven seeds, Ostapenko and Kitchenok, they came back to beat the top seeds in the doubles from a set down, 4-6, 7-6, 10-5. For the women's singles quarterfinals today, number six seed Arena Sabalenka beat Shuai Zhang 6-4-7-6 in that struggle fest. Petra Kvitova is looking very good. She played well yesterday against Jabor. She's played well all week. Petra Kvitova is chill. Cincinnati is chill. I like this matchup. Kvitova beats the qualifier Tomlanovic today 6-2-6-3. Madison Keys needed two chances to serve it out against Elena Rabakina, but Keys does get the routine win, 6-2-6-4. And then the qualifier, Carolyn Garcia, gets a very nice win over the very solid number seven seed, Jessica Pagula, 6-1-7-5. Pagula's a tough out, and maybe on another day I'd spend more time on this, but... There's other stuff to get to today. So, a qualifier, Carolyn Garcia, is into the semifinals. Good for her. On the men's side today, starting with the doubles, and these are all quarterfinals for the men's doubles today. On Friday, here is what happened. The number one seeds. The number one seeds, Ram and Salisbury, beat Hachinov and Shapovalov, 6-1-7-6. Number six seeds, Tim Puetz and Michael Venus upset the two seeds, Marcel Granoliers and Horatio Zabios, 6-3-6-3. Santiago Gonzalez and Edward Roger Vaselin beat Kevin Krawitz. And Andreas Mies, 6-3-6-7-10-6. And then the singles boys and a wildcard entry, Stefano Tsitsipas and Holger Rune beat the number four seeds, 
Marcelo Arvalo, and Jean-Julien Roger, 7-5-4-6-10-7. So yes, Sitsipas is going to be in the semifinals of both singles and doubles tomorrow, but we'll get to that in just a moment. In the men's singles quarterfinals today, protected ranking man, Borna Chorich, beat number seven seed, Felix Auger-Aliassime, 6-4, 6-4. Number nine seed, Cameron Norrie, beat the number three seed, Carlos Alcaraz, 7-6, 6-7, 6-4. That match was three hours and three minutes, by the way. Number four seed, Stefanos Tsitsipas, defeated John Isner, and he did everybody a favor by dismissing John Isner, 7-6-5-7-6-3. It is a rare situation indeed when Stefanos Tsitsipas is unquestionably the more likable of two players in a singles match. Yeah, there's two players I don't cover, really, Marin Cilic and John Isner. I'm just not big fans of the way they play, and I'm not big fans of their personalities. Here's how much I have to say about how John Isner did this week. The number one seed, Daniil Medvedev, beat the number 11 seed, Taylor Fritz, 7-6-6-3. This is the first time in a while that Daniil Medvedev felt like the number one player in the world in how he played a match and how he saved set points and went on from there. So it's nice when Daniil Medvedev is feeling like he's got that number one aura. At least for today, he did. Those are all the scores from Friday, August 19th, 2022. Now let's move on to the schedule for semifinal Saturday. We're down to two courts, and we'll do both the singles and doubles here. So this is the order of play for Saturday, August 20th, 2022 at the Western and Southern Open. 11 a.m. on center court. Madison Keys versus Petra Kvitova. 1 p.m. on center court. Arena Sabalenka versus Carolyn Garcia. 1 p.m. on grandstand. Number one seeds Salisbury and Ram take on Gonzalez and Roger Vaselin. 3 p.m. on center court. Daniil Medvedev versus Stefanos Tsitsipas. I'm not going to play the Miami clip. You guys can go find the Miami clip. It's out there. After Tsitsipas is done with singles, he's going to go to grandstand and play his semifinal in doubles. There's no set time on that, but it'll be after the 3 p.m. singles, so probably during happy hour 5 or 6. And that'll be Holger Rune and Stefanos Tsitsipas against Tim Puetz and Michael Venus. 6 p.m. on center court. Cameron Norrie versus Borna Chorich, followed by the women's doubles final between Kitchenok Ostapenko and 
Melchor Martinez Perez. So the the women's semis are first at eleven and one, and the men's semis are second at three and six. I know why they're doing that because the women play first on Sunday and the men play second, and they want to give them optimal rest time. But I think what's happened to the Western and Southern Open Saturday schedule over the last decade, it's changed multiple times and not necessarily for the better. I remember the first couple times that I went, they split the day session one and one, and they split the night session one and one. And maybe it's good. Maybe we're avoiding the dreaded Matt Zemeck split session semifinals by doing it this way. So, I don't know. Maybe it's a good thing. Why do the WTA always have to go first? Right? It feels like if you're playing a a 1,000 semifinal at 11 a.m. on purpose, not because of weather or something, why? Why aren't Nori and Shorich playing at 11 a.m.? Right? Why does the WTA have to go first? Is it because the organizers think that the WTA is inferior? Shouldn't the WTA matches deserve a better time slot than this? Why is it starting at 11? Can't we start four matches at 12 o'clock or 1? Why can't we start it at 1? Have the women's semis at 1 and 3? Have the men's at 5 and 7? I don't know. Again, but the schedule as it exists, the ladies at 11 and 1, and the men at 3 and 6. 6 p.m., one singles for a night session, not great, but it is what it is. I think we are going to start to wrap up the show now. Oh, head-to-heads. I don't really want to do head-to-heads. Uh, But I'll look him up anyway. Okay, fine, fine. Okay. Uh, Let's do this live on the air, because I didn't pull this up. So the first semi is going to be Medvedev against Tsitsipas. So I'm pulling that up now. There is the Medvedev side. Now let's get the Tsitsipas side. They've played nine times already in their career. Medvedev leads 7-2. to two. Let's take a look. They've played one time this year. Medvedev won in Australia. 6-1 in the fourth. The two Tsitsipas wins. One of them was on clay, and the other was on indoor hard. Looks like they've never played in Cincinnati. Have they played in August? 2018 U.S. Open, Medi won... And that is their only August meeting. So, should be interesting. That is a rank, ranked matchup of number one versus number seven. Then in the other one, what do we got? We got Chorich against Nori. Let's see what that head-to-head is. Chorich against Cameron Nori. Let's see... They've played twice. It's one to one. 2018 Shenzhen 
Nori won that. 2019 Rome, Chorich won that. So uh, just basically throw those out. This is a totally different kettle of fish or a totally different uh, basket of fish and chips or whatever uh, analogy that you want to use there. Let's make this even. Let me see if the WTA head-to-head machine. Keys and Kvitova, they're tied 4-4. That's interesting. More head-to-head. Where's the list here? <laughs> Their head-to-head goes back to 2013. They've only played twice in the last five years, and those are split. They played in 2021 Cincinnati, second round, and Kvitova won that 7-5-6-4. So... Maybe that's their most relevant meeting. But maybe Cincinnati can be a good place for Kvitova. Who knows? Then the other one, just to put that in. And again, this is called live radio. And remember, this is an amateur podcast. So I'm doing this on the fly with one hand, more head-to-head. Can I change the names here of the players that are involved? It I don't. looks like I can't. So I'm going to do this manually. So the other uh, match is um, uh, Garcia and Sabalenka. I'm going to type it into Google here. A Steve G tennis thing might come up. Garcia versus Sabalenka. Steve G tennis. There it is. Let's get the unofficial head-to-head. Um, <laughs> head-to-head results, two to one. So they've played. They played three times in 2018, and Sabalenka won two, Garcia won one. So it's two for Sabalenka, one for Garcia. And four years ago, and it's again. This is going to be completely different. And one more stat to share with you. So yesterday I did the stats about how many quarterfinals each of the quarterfinalists had. Now let's go through how many semifinals each of the semifinalists have. So the number here is going to be the number of Masters 1000 semifinals they've made in their career. Sitsipas 12. Medvedev, 9. Chorich, 3. Nori, 2. Kvitova, 19. Sabalenka, 8. Keys, 5. Garcia, 4. I think that is well and truly all that I have. So now let's move on to the coverage for Saturday. Matches get underway at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Tennis Channel has the cable coverage. Tennis Channel Plus has WTA and ATP streams. And Tennis TV has the ATP coverage, including commentary-free feeds. Another long pod today, another big pod. Um, Leave a five-star review, please. Leave a nice note. 
um, wherever you're listening. Still working on getting the podcast onto other platforms, but I will try it eventually. And hey, we're nearing the end of the two-week podcast experiment. I wanted to commit for it, commit to it for four weeks, and then see how it went. And we're getting towards the end of that commitment. It was a good day of action today from Cincinnati. And tomorrow's going to be another one. Talk to you soon. This podcast was courtesy Argon Productions. In fact, in the first set, Alcaraz had a total of he had a total of a total of a total of